Welcome to Artthrob, where you'll find inquisitive conversations between Artthrob host Kate Savage and artists, writers, performers, producers, and artistic entrepreneurs about their work and all things arts-related. Get to know who's doing the work, who's making the arts happen, and who's keeping them exciting and accessible. Gain an insider's view through these exchanges and a glimpse into the wonder-filled world of creative individuals. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Artthrob, the bi-weekly podcast about all things arts-related. This week, I'm so excited to have Julian Robson as my guest. Julian is an independent curator who shares his time between the U.S. and Austria. Educated at art schools in the UK, he began his curatorial career in the university gallery system in England, and subsequently spent 10 years working in private galleries in Vienna. Moving to the U.S. in 2000, for eight years he served as the curator of contemporary art at the Speed Art Museum in Louisville, and then at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Art in Philadelphia, organizing many solo and group shows at these museums. In 2012, he moved back to Louisville and began curating the collection of contemporary art-collecting couple Mary and Al Shands, and in 2013, edited and contributed to Great Meadows, The Making of Here, a book about the Shands' house and collection. In 2015, he helped found in-house, an initiative of Kentucky contemporary art collector and philanthropist Brooke Smith that supports residencies and special creative projects. In 2016, Robson was appointed the director of the Great Meadows Foundation, an initiative of Al Shands that supports the growth of artistic activity in the Kentucky region. Additionally, since Al Shan's passing in 2021, he now holds the position of director of the Mary and Al Shan's Art Preserve. Welcome, Julian. Thank you for being my guest. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm very excited because I have lots of questions for you. The first one is, I know that you met Al Shans a long time ago, although it wasn't until more recently that you became directly involved with him. But talk us through those early days and how the relationship evolved. Right. Well, I actually met Al when I came for an interview at the Speed Art Museum in 1999. I visited him at his house whilst I was being interviewed. And then arriving at the Speed in 2000, I had to work directly with him as a trustee of the museum and also as uh, one of the important contemporary art collectors connected to the museum. And so during that time, uh, of course, I would visit his house a lot, uh, would talk with him a lot, and we developed a very strong friendship um, and shared interests, I think, in, in visual art. Then when I moved to Philadelphia to the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts. He actually came onto the board there for the four years that I was working there. Uh, After returning to Louisville after those four years, I actually came back initially to work with him on the book about Great Meadows. By this time, you know, I was, I kind of knew his collection intimately by this point, um, had had a lot of uh, discussions with him and been to the house many times and we had actually gone to art fairs together and stuff like that as well as exhibitions so when I came back I started to work on the book which meant that I was actually traveling here from Vienna to begin with and staying at his home and working with him on developing the book and that eventually turned into me getting a place here and becoming his own personal curator So from about 2013, I really was working with him directly on the collection and helping him and being, if you like, his uh, his sounding board, I guess. (laughs) Must have been wonderful to have someone like you on tap to sort of bounce ideas off and and go to galleries and exhibitions with and get your, your thoughts and input. But 
they, as a couple, started collecting a lot earlier than that, back in 1980s, something, 80s, 80s? Actually, 81. Okay. Um, and they, they started collecting seriously in 1981. They were both very cultured people who had, had their families had had sort of collections, but not it wasn't a serious interest. And... In 1981, Mary, Al's wife, was invited by um, Phyllis George Brown, the wife of the governor, and Lois Matus, who worked uh, in the governor's office. She was invited to lead the Kentucky Foundation for Art and Craft, which they were setting up and which was organized initially as an organization to promote Kentucky craftspeople outside of Kentucky to help to sell their work, etc., and they were doing shows in Bloomingdale's and things like that. And, of course, Mary then felt the need to really inform herself about what was happening in Kentucky Crafts, and it was when they went to a craft fair at Berea that Al became, well, claims this is the moment when he became a serious collector, an addict, as he called it. Um, he went into this fair, and there he saw a piece of work um, by Wayne Ferguson. And Wayne is a very well-known uh, Kentucky ceramicist. And he was so taken with this work that he bought it, took it to his car, and then immediately went back and started buying more things. And that's really when he got the bug to collect. And it was a bug, and it was a bug too, yeah. wasn't it? It was, and, and at that time they, they lived in a Victorian house on the estate where they eventually built a new house, um, and they started collecting Kentucky crafts, you know, ceramics mainly, and then gradually as they became more and more informed and connected to dealers and museum people and so on, uh, they started to collect nationally known figures and then internationally known figures. And during this period of about seven years, six years actually, the, the, the collection was growing um, enormously. The works were getting bigger and they decided to build a new house, which they completed in 1988. Um, interestingly, there was an exhibition of their ceramics at the Speed in 1987 that Peter Morin curated, which must have been whilst they were building the house. <laughs> They built the, this beautiful house at Great Meadows, uh, which is on the same state of Fox Hollow Farm. And this really became a vehicle for them to expand the collection in different ways. I think Al had realized by the time they were building the house that he really was becoming more interested in sculpture. Uh, or, uh, because he was really thinking of ceramics in a sculptural way too. Uh, the Robert Arneson they had by this time was very large. Uh, they had a Peter Volkos that's a fairly large work, and, and Betty Woodman uh, they had been collecting. Uh, so they built the house, it was completed, and it, it became really a vessel for the growth of the collection, which eventually, by the time that Al died, uh, consisted in 380 works altogether, but many of these were large sculptures, some of which are outside of the house, which couldn't go in the house, they're so big. Well, that sort of brings me to the next question, which is this exhibition that is currently at the Speed and will be up until August the 6th is a collection of his work that now, since he passed away in 2021, will be dispersed. He must have chosen not to leave it to kids or kin, uh, but dispersing it amongst several different museums. I understand the speed is in line to receive maybe a hundred of these works, and the idea was that they be exhibited as a collection, obviously not in its entirety because there aren't 300-odd pieces in this show, which is called Rounding the Circle. But talk maybe about that decision, Julian, and, and where the works will be going. Very early in their collecting, Mary and Al 
once they had started to really establish the collection, decided that they would give the collection to museums. I think primarily they were thinking of the Speed Art Museum because obviously Al was a trustee there. And as time went by, it went through various iterations of which pieces the Speed would want, depending on who was coming to the house. You know, over the years, there were differing curators and differing directors. And so that list sort of mutated a little bit. Uh, but in the end, there are 177 works that have been bequeathed to the Speed. There have been 90 works bequeathed to KMAC Contemporary Art Museum, which formerly was the Kentucky Foundation for Art and Craft. 45 works will be going to Western Kentucky University, uh, three to Owensboro Museum, 14 to Georgetown College Galleries, and five works to the Capital City Museum in Frankfurt. The decision to keep them all, all of these works in Kentucky, was really a, a result of it was two things, really. First of all, if you think about the Speedwood cherry pick, because they had first choice, they had first dibs, and certain works were allocated to KMAC Museum, and uh, so... Th- there were certain things that it would, you know, a New York museum would not want. By chance and by design, the whole collection has remained in Kentucky, and I think that's a good thing. Um, the choices for the museums were made, first of all, the speed would make a choice, and then KMAC, I offered them to choose from the remainder um, on top of what they had already been bequeathed by Al, I gave them first choice, feeling that it was important that they should have a substantial number of works, given that Mary was one of the founding people. Then I, I thought about museums around the state and kind of going through the list. I thought, well, Western Kentucky is actually the Kentucky Museum. And so I wanted to invite them to have a choice before anyone further. And then Georgetown College, which I feel has a gem of a collection, came and chose their works. And then this really left just a small amount of works for um, the capital city to choose from and for Owensboro to choose from. There are actually seven large sculptures outside of the house which will remain there. And these are in the meadow at the back. And uh, they will become the Marion Alshans Art Preserve, which is akin to a small sculpture park. It will never be added to, uh, but it will be open to the public as of next year on a limited basis uh, for tours. And that remains really because very late in his life, close towards the end of his life, Al felt he had created something that was complete with these sculptures in, in the meadow and that it was something that should remain together and not be separated. Um, When it comes to the show at the Speed, it was Al's wish that before this collection was dispersed, that there should be an exhibition at the Speed about the collection. And the Speed were generous enough to give us the third floor gallery, which is about 7,500 square feet, and also uh, the gallery above the cinema, which is called the Loft Gallery, which is about 1,500 square feet. And this gave me the opportunity to display about 120 works. And it's really split into two types of show. Uh, In the main large gallery, what I've tried to do is to work on the basis of what was in the house. Um, And in the other gallery, I have put works that belong to what Al and I used to jokingly call the Shans 92 collection, so-called because he was 92 at the time when we thought of it. But that second part reflects really an interest he had towards the end of his life in younger artists. He He started to get interested in the idea that he should visit artists who we had given grants to. He was starting to pay more attention to what was going on locally once again, uh, and we would visit Susan Mormon Gallery, we would come to the University of Kentucky Art Museum, uh, visit Georgetown College for their exhibitions, etc., go up to Covington. Um, and at the same time, he was 
traveling around galleries in New York that he would not normally have visited um, with the guidance of a young curator who he knew in New York. So he was actually traveling down to the Lower East Side and seeing the, the smaller galleries that are down there. So the, the collection started to kind of come full circle in some ways in that he was returning back to younger artists and artists who were from our region. Uh, and also, I would add that he was starting to pay attention again to ceramics, whereas the middle period of the collection was really large sculptures and paintings and works on paper. So uh, the the main part of the, the show, that, or the larger part, I should say, is uh, it consists of about 100 works, um, and it leads you through, I guess the journey of it is really, it leads you through um, some of the earlier works that they were collecting to kind of give an introduction, but then gradually becomes, it, it, it becomes more about uh, the idea of the conversation that he had when he talked about his collection. So it, it reflects on the way that he collected. It's not an attempt to make a scientific analysis of contemporary art or art of the last 30 years, but rather to see it through the eyes of a collector. Um, and I would add that by the end of his life, we knew each other so well that you know we, we, we kind of our own ways of thinking about art have grown somewhat together. Uh, we spent so much time going around looking at things and being, you know, I spent so much time actually visiting him in his house as well. So it becomes a, a kind of conversation that goes on between the works, which is renewed in a sense because it's translated out of the house into another environment. So his idea was that you would see this all together before it was dispersed. Uh, but the exhibition becomes an interesting proposition because in the house, uh, the work very much found their positions within the architecture, within the very special architecture of the house. Um, and their conversations were mediated by this architecture. Uh, a museum is a very different kind of place. You know, for instance, the house was very full of natural light. In museums, you have no natural light. It is all synthetic. Uh, the house had a number of wall different materials on the walls, um, you know, there's fabric on the walls and so on, uh, and also different materials on the floor. There was there was stone on the walls, there was fabric there, there was painted uh, drywall. Um, so then moving into the gallery, it's an orthogonal structure, which is all drywall over plywood, uh, which can't, imitate anything in the house so it's a, it's a very different environment but i think in one sense it's an interesting translation because one of the things i realized when we had finished putting it up uh, was to sense the quality of all of this work and the the ability of works by kentucky-based artists to stand up next to the works made by internationally renowned artists. A, a particular thing that I've thought this about is uh, a small sculpture by Kia Celeste, who is a 20-something Louisville-based artist, and a big Anish Kapoor. But this happens throughout, it, throughout the show. And then there is a different emphasis is given to some works which may not have looked either as large or as small in the house, they change dimension because of the way that the museum presents them, the way that the museum architecture presents them. So it's very interesting to kind of see, and, and it was a discovery for me in putting it in there. I think also for me, Julian, I enjoyed the opportunity to see a person through the works they had chosen to collect. I think that was insightful opportunity. And I realized that not only was Al Shans a collector, but he was also a little bit of a philosopher and also 
definitely with his generosity, a philanthropist himself. And I was struck, and I enjoyed, by the way, the various quotes that were on the wall in the museum. I thought those were well-placed and uh, thought-provoking. And there's this one from, I don't know who he was talking to, but it's from the book that you collaborated with. And he says, what I've learned in this process of collecting is that the art you've collected does not belong to you. It belongs to anyone and everyone who stands before it and sees it in a new way. In the long run, an art collection is about milestones on the road. It's deeply personal. Who knows how this collection will be seen in years to come? No doubt differently. I think that's that really kind of speaks to what you were just saying about how you've chosen to place the works, curate the works uh, in this collection and juxtapose some of them so that they are thought provoking. And you do see well-known international name recognition artists with people who are still probably making their way up the ladder. Yeah. And, and actually that quote comes from right at the end of the book. Um, and it was a piece called L'Envoi that he wrote as a sort of conclusion to the book. And it seemed a very appropriate quote to use at the very end of the exhibition um, as, as a sort of coda that says, well, you know, this, this is no longer um, my collection. It belongs somewhere else. It will, be, it will take on different meanings as it is translated into different places and different contexts. So the actual exhibition is up until August the 6th. What will happen to the house? I understand it's empty and I realize that those big sculptures will stay in place and become a sculpture garden, but will that also include the house? Well, the house will remain in the family. Um, I, I can't imagine that they would ever want to have anybody else living on that estate. Um, and Janie, who is Al's stepdaughter, uh, who is the oldest child, uh, is now like the grand dame of the family, and it is her responsibility to think about how the house will be used. Um, there are all sorts of discussions going on, uh, and I'm not really at liberty to, to talk about it much, but uh, Jane does run the Fox Hollow Farm, which is a grass-fed beef farm. It's like 1,800 acres in Oldham County. And she is very interested in farm culture and uh, biodynamics and uh, has spoken a bit about maybe this could be a place for conferences, residences, and so on. And, and I've been privileged to be able to contribute into the discussion and of course I'm interested in the family continuing to have art in the house which which would be, make it very interesting for anybody who would come there and that could take different forms but it's it's hard to say what that might be yet. I think it will be a year or, or so before really Janie starts to make decisions about how the house will be used. But it is a discussion going throughout the whole family. I can imagine. I imagine yeah. that there are lots of uh, lots of alternatives, and it'll yeah. be interesting to see what finally happens. So, once the works have all been packed up and and sent their respective ways, you will be the director of Mary and Al Shan's Art Preserve. Is mm -hmm. that the sculpture exhibition? as such, or, or what is that now embracing? Well, the, the Art Preserve um, is simply a small sculpture park, and I was very interested in the relationship of art and nature. And what he and I discussed when we had, when he decided it was finished, was really that there, was, there seemed to be a conversation going on about modernism, um, amongst these sculptures. Um, he did say to me, I, I had to write the essay about it at some point, and I haven't even thought about that yet. But it will be something where we will probably open it on a limited basis during 
four months of the year, which would be the bearable four months, such as uh, May, June, September, and October, uh, because at other parts of the year, it, it's very hard to kind of get around there because it gets so hot. Um, but it, during those months, it's, it's actually a very beautiful place. And uh, it was pretty extraordinary last year in September, um, we had the IKT Congress come here, and there were about eight, a gathering of about 85 curators of contemporary art from across the globe. And we held an event out there, and it was a big, big surprise to them all. Um, it's a pretty extraordinary environment to then have these very large abstract sculptures. And, and at the center of all of that is a landwork by Maya Lin which is very large. So uh, I think it will be an interesting, if you like, a, a, in a way, a sort of counterpoint to Josephine Sculpture Park, an interesting relationship between the two, because Josephine is something that will keep changing as they add things. The Mary Nalshan's Art Preserve will not have any more works put in there. Um, it's the, These works... The works that are there now belong to the Great Meadows Foundation, so it's our responsibility as a foundation to take care of them and look after them. But we do not have a remit within the foundation to create exhibitions or to add things to this, to actually purchase works of art. So it's, it's kind of all folded into the foundation in a way. So kind of curated very deliberately and now will be, will be frozen in time, so to speak. He, he curated it over 16 years, um, the final work being uh, Tower by Monica Sosnowska, which was actually erected during uh, COVID, right at the beginning of COVID, we put that piece in. Um, and the changing nature of it really is the landscape during the year. That the context within which these works are seen changes as nature changes. I just can't imagine being able to collect art and then build my own home around my art to be able to actually enjoy it on a daily basis. But that was so important to him, obviously, to be surrounded by his art and his bequest to these other fortunate places that will be the recipients of his generosity. Um, just amazing. But talk now, let's sort of switch around here and talk about the actual foundation, because I know that lots of money has been awarded to many artists in this Kentucky region. And the uh, foundation, the Great Meadows Foundation was formed in 2016 by Al Shans and engages the visual arts in Kentucky through grant programs. And of course, everybody gets the willies around grant programs uh, designed specifically to support the region's artists and visual arts professionals with the mission to critically strengthen and support visual arts in Kentucky by empowering community artists and other visual arts professionals to do research and make connections, which running a nonprofit called Arts Connect, I'm all about connections. So talk about the foundation, Julian, how much you have in fact to date been able to uh, give to artists to help support this mission and what it is that artists can do to uh, get on board, I suppose. Yeah. Well, when when we were originally talking about setting up the foundation, Al had decided to set up a foundation. He wasn't quite sure what it should do. And so we held a series of small salon dinners with Louisville artists, collectors, museum people, people who wrote about art. And, and at these dinners, we had a structure where you could talk about anything you wanted during cocktails, but as soon as you sat at the table, uh, it was very directly a discussion about what we felt was good and what was missing in the Louisville art scene. Um, at that time, we'd only thought of it as being Louisville. Uh, there were only six guests at each of these eight dinners. At the end of those that series, he and I sat down and discussed what we felt the 
main subjects coming out of the discussion were. And the one that really stood above all others was criticism, that there was no a feeling amongst everybody that was no real critical activity going on um, around the visual arts in Kentucky. Uh, you know, that's not to discount that it obviously does happen in the schools. But I think that uh, particularly with the artists, there was this sense that they didn't feel that people were coming to their studios and giving them criticism and so on and so forth. Um, tied to that, there was also the sense that, of course, artists have no money, um, generally speaking. Uh, then what we decided to do was to think around a foundation that could help inform artists in the state, help them to travel to actually see major art events like big exhibitions, art festivals, etc. We, d- we don't fund people to go to commercial art fairs. That's just not in our remit. Um, but we were also thinking about how Creative Capital at the time in Louisville were running the Hadley Creatives, which was a, a kind of class to teach artists a certain type of professionalism which was really the professionalism of how do you present yourself to someone else you know really about how do you how do you sell your art to say a dealer or a museum person Uh, we wanted to be the other side of that coin and to think in terms of well how how does an artist understand what they themselves do how do they engage in the discourse that travels through contemporary art that is national and international? It doesn't mean you have to discard those regional aspects that are important to your practice or the influence of the local, um, but it does create a bigger framework for thinking about what you're doing. We wanted, therefore, to provide them with knowledge that would help them then develop the tools to be able to go and talk to people about their work rather than say teaching them how to brand themselves that kind of thing and so we set up the artist professional development grant it's a grant that you can apply for we encourage people to think about going to see major exhibitions that are important for their practice you know maybe an artist that You've never seen a major exhibition of their work. You know, and I, there was one artist very early on who wanted to go and see uh, the Agnes Martin retrospective at the Guggenheim uh, because this artist was important her practice. And she pointed out that she would never have an opportunity again in her life to see all of these works together in one place. We have helped people to go to the Venice Biennale, to Documenta, to... Prospect New Orleans, people have been to see exhibitions in San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, etc., etc. Equally, we are interested in people being interested to go to symposia, conferences. We've helped artists go to the, the International Sculpture Conference that's held in a different city across the states each year. Um, we've had people going to other things like uh, a conference in Taiwan that was connected, sorry, not in Taiwan, in Korea, that was connected to the Guangzhou Biennial. Then we also support artists going to uh, residencies. And residencies are kind of interesting. um, And I would add that we do not provide money for artists to buy materials. But you know, residencies sometimes charge fees and it, you have to get there. And residencies are a place where artists are coming into close contact with other art professionals and very often with people who are in other disciplines. For instance, the, the Jurassic Foundation in California, if you go to that residency, there's very often art historians, writers, musicians, etc., etc. These are all very important connections in order that discussions happen that are slightly out of the norm um, in your hometown, in your own environment, your own backyard. Uh, So we're interested really in how that discussion happens, how the growth of knowledge happens, how the direct experience of art 
you know, and we, we live in an age where people are looking at things on the screen all the time and imagining they know a work of art from seeing it on the screen. Well, the only thing you can know of a work of art on the screen is a piece that has been made for the screen. Um, and, I, you know, I've just been in New York for four days and kind of trudging around every gallery I could get to, and you realize that, in fact, that direct experience of works of art is a very different thing from looking at reproductions of them. So in a way, the foundation is offering the opportunity for exposure. Yeah, exposure to contemporary art. Right. And and we focus on contemporary art. You know, we, we don't want people to write to us that they want to go and see primarily to see Caravaggio in Venice. <laughs> you know, that's, we want we want them to really be engaged with contemporary art and to understand the discussions that are going on um, within the works that are being seen so that they can engage with that from their own perspective and point of view um, and with their own language. Break down the, uh, the process of applying, Julian, because anybody who maybe is listening that is interested in... Uh, right. It's very, it's very simple, and and we 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 have an application uh, page on the website. But what we encourage people to do first is actually to talk to us. I think what people don't understand, um, I do understand this from having worked in museums and written very very long grants, that a foundation will want to know who you are, and so it's very good that. It's, it's very good to kind of come to us first and talk to us. And what we try and do is advise artists about, one, whether the project they are thinking of fits within the framework and of, of, of the grant that we actually give. Um, two, to help them think around the details that they will need to put together for it and maybe to help them elaborate it more Uh they, they then ask three questions, the first of which is, tell us about your practice. And we're not interested in people telling us their life story. We're really interested in what are the concerns of your work? Like, what are the intentions? What is the subject matter? These kinds of things. And we, we don't give them much space to do it. We give them 1,500 characters, including spaces. And that's really because I've... Very early on, when we just made it a kind of open letter of application, I was getting applications that were loaded with adjectives and no content. And we want people to think about what they're actually saying, uh, what is the content of this form, rather than uh, thinking you have to be flowery in the way you say it. Um, Then the second question is really, where do you want to go? What is it you want to do? And that's more like a kind of itinerary um, that will out, and, and if there are people that you will meet with, you know, whether there are other artists that you will be visiting or uh, maybe curators that you will be trying to get into contact with and so on and so forth. And then the third part is really to tell us why. And of course, if you've stated what the concerns of your practice are, then you can think in terms of, well, I want to do this because it relates to what I do and it helps me grow as an artist or, you know, or it could just be, I have never seen this. I have never been to the Venice Biennale, the biggest, the barometer of what is happening in international art, international contemporary art. We then ask them to give us a a detailed budget. And this is really, these are things where when we get a visit from someone or we speak to them on the phone, we can help them understand the kind of detail that we need. And it's really to help them think this through carefully and also to give them a sense that they have to do research. You know, it's work to go on a trip and you need to know what you're going to spend on. There's no point in detailing all of the travel and the hotels and so on and so forth if you don't also detail how much it costs to get into a museum. Because that's what you're asking for, is the money for that. Uh, so we, we help guide them through all of that. We encourage people, if they're going to apply, they should get in touch with us more than two weeks before the grant deadline, because otherwise we may not have time to talk to them. Um, we will then, if they, if they get to us in time, we will go through a draft with them. You know, they can write up a draft, we'll go back and give them some criticism and say, you know, you could do this or this or this, or you've forgotten something that you can do whilst you're there. Um, 
and or you've forgotten something in the budget that doesn't tell me like what date you're flying that kind of thing <laughs> um and uh then we ask them to send us 10 slides and we give them the parameters for that and we encourage them not to include details of works and if something's big to to know to put a figure in it so that you know a person so you can see how big it is you know if, if you ever see commercial gallery press releases nowadays and they send out an image it's a really big piece of work they'll have one of the members of staff stand next to it so you've got an idea um and uh then a CV, and we restrict the CV, and it has to be in CV form. We restrict it to one page, and that really is those who have enormous amount of exhibitions have to think how are they going to edit that. Um, and particularly thinking in terms of they want to obviously reinforce what they have said in question number one about their practice. They may have been invited into uh, thematic exhibitions where the title reflects exactly the subject matter of their work, that kind of thing. And uh, it, it also means that those who have very short CVs are not embarrassed about just having half a page. That then We then have a, the suppliers with a list of what the slides they're sending are, and this is all done digitally over the website. Uh, and there they can put in some other information, although we don't want them to put interpretations of the work, but rather information should, for instance, a photograph of a piece of work suddenly make it look ambiguous and you're not sure what the hell you're looking at. You can describe, you know, this. Think about if, if Anish Kapoor was um, trying to show you a slide of his Xanta Black sculptures <laughs> and all you see is a black square you know in a text he can say to you well actually in the front of this it's three-dimensional and it sticks out a little bit and blah 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 so it's really just inf supportive information to help us understand the slide itself rather than telling us a history of the work and the application can be between five hundred dollars and six thousand dollars um, and, it, it, and it has varied a lot over the years that we've been given this grant. And obviously people who are traveling long distances or are going to Europe or other continents, um, they tend to be larger grants. And then everything, the reason, the reason we can help you, them write the grant is that even though it is a competitive grant, we format everything the same way and send it to a reviewer who will make recommendations to the foundation of which grants we should give. And that reviewer is always a curator who does not live in this state. And it will be a different curator every time we do it. And the reason for that is so that we, on the one hand, we can help the person to write the grant. Two, it takes away from any sense that there is a favoritism going on. Well, it, it sounds as if you bend over backwards to open all the doors possible, and and yeah. much of it is is a coaching exercise to help applicants fit the fit the bill and not yeah uh, submit material that's of course. I think that mentoring thing is really important because many young artists and also probably many older artists have a fear of applying for grants not just Great Meadows Foundation, just across the board uh, because of the sense that they think maybe they just won't get it, you know, and it always goes to the same people. If you don't apply, it always will go to the same people because they're the ones that are applying. And uh, if you don't talk to us, then you won't kind of get those insights that we can give you as to how you write a grant. Um, it was There was an interesting story told to me about someone who was – an artist who for many years had applied to the Kentucky Foundation for Women for grants and never got one. And then one year she was invited to be on the selection panel and she realized immediately what she was doing wrong, but had never thought to go and talk to them about that sort of thing. Um, so I think it's important and we want the foundation to be a friendly organization. We want to encourage people. I think a lot of people feel that I'm... The criticism I give them in their studios is very tough, but I think it's very much appreciated. And, and I would add that, you know, very often we will have those meetings in a studio. Certainly when I've been out to Lexington and visited artists, 
there that, that have wanted to apply for grants, then it's done in the studio, and then it becomes also like a studio for it. So it's also useful in that way. It sounds as if once that initial step is taken to make the decision and apply, then the rest of it is helpful regardless. And yeah, and, and, and the way that it works in terms of receipt of grants is that if you get a grant, um, then you only have to miss one round, the next round, as long as you have supplied us with the final report from that grant. And what we have recently done, because we do have people who have had like five or eight grants, we have changed it so that people who have more grants have to take more time out from applying because we want really to open this up to a much broader group of artists and to encourage also younger artists to apply. It doesn't sound as intimidating as it maybe has been perceived. It really sounds as if you're very generous with the help and the leg up. There are many grants where you, I, I know from having applied for some myself, Julian, that you just stare at the questions and one of the largest challenges is trying to figure out what it is indeed exactly they want to know from you. And sometimes the wording is either repetitive and you wonder if you have answering the question all over again from an earlier question in the grant or you miss the point back at the beginning. So with just the three questions, slides and no misunderstanding about the questions, it sounds as if with the coaching and everything else, people would have a really good shot at this. We're also looking into the possibility of, I, I have been talking to the director of LVA over the past year about the need for mentorship, that that's a very important thing to help artists to be able to understand what a grant is asking for. Since 2016, we have given away, I think, somewhere in the region of 300 and something grants and in the sum of more than $850,000. We have a number of other programs in place too, and one of them is that we have a curator travel grant, which we deal with that directly, It's not, it, and it's open all during the year until we run out of money in that budget. But that's more a case of, because I'm, because I'm probably one of the most senior curators in the state, uh, they can just come directly to me and discuss it. And we do that as professionals one-on-one. -on -one. And uh, then we have a program that's called Critic in Residence, where each year we bring a, an independent curator to the state, and they spend two months here. They, they live in a house just in New Albany that we have the good fortune to be able to, to use. And they are committed to spending 80, 80 hours during two months visiting artists in their studios and giving them critiques. Um, this, this last year, we've also been involving uh, interns from the university in this, and they have been, they traveled with the critic to the studios to, and these are interns that are studying to be curators. So it's really great practice for them to, and, and experience to see what happens when a professional curator goes into someone's studio. Is there an opportunity for artists to request to be on that list for a visit? Or? Well, they, they can't request a visit because what we do is we give the critic in residence the biggest list we have at that moment of artists across the state. We encourage them that they really should be visiting across the state. And uh, they then can research the artists and the ones that they feel it would be beneficial to visit, they will visit. They will arrange to visit. Um, so it's, it's not on a kind of request basis. But what's important is that we want to expand the list of artists' information that we have. And uh, we've actually just recently started exchanging it with all of the other arts institutions we can think of across the state um, and, and actually making available to them the list that we have established thus far and then requesting if there are people they think we should have on this list that they can send us that information too. Yeah, that would be wonderful. 
that that actually would be a tremendous resource for everybody in the industry, Julian. And and you know, it would be nice if it were possible for somewhere to be a a database of information that anybody could access. Exactly. But I don't know who has the resources to to actually maintain that at present. The Christian residence comes. We do that. Uh, we have been supporting uh, writing through the support of um, some uh, kind of web magazines and stuff. So we, we have been helping um, Ruckus Louisville, and also we were helping uh, Undermain. Yeah, Undermain. But unfortunately, they have now disappeared. Well, Christine says they're just taking a hiatus, so maybe they're they're just (laughs) resting on their laurels for a little. I I think maybe it was becoming too much work for them all to keep doing. These things become overwhelming. They really do. Yeah, and you suddenly find you need lots and lots and lots of funding, And, and we're not in a position to do that. And also I'm very wary of keeping our... Uh, central focus being artists across the state right. rather than funding other things. The future will offer a lot more from Great Meadows Foundation. Last year we, we brought the IKT Congress to Louisville and we're discussing in-house the possibility of holding a major conference each year or every other year where we would be bringing people to the state, um, not just to sit in an auditorium, but also to have a day where we would take them round places and to visit artists. And I think there have been a couple of returns from the IKT Congress of artists getting opportunities. And I think this is something that we can really grow. The foundation will, will have an endowment which will come out of Al Shans's will, um, when that is finally closed. And that will allow us then to expand our activities. And we are working on types of programs that we would want to support once that has happened and, and that the funding of the foundation is much greater. Many wonderful and exciting things that are being done and we can look forward to uh, experiencing in the future, Julian. We're pretty much out of time at this point, but I want to encourage listeners to be sure to catch the Speed Show, the Al and Mary Shands collection, Rounding the Circle, open there until the 6th of August, so about Mm -hmm. another month ago. I would would also add that there is a smaller show at KMAC on the top of works that, that that have been given to them as well. Oh, gosh, okay. And that runs till a similar date. All right. Well, that's not too far away. That's just downtown Louisville. Easy to get to, that's for sure. So between talking about Al and the collection and the Great Meadows Foundation and other things in between, I appreciate you being my guest today. Very interesting to you. Thank you very much, Kate. For more information about this and other Art Throb podcast conversations, visit the Art Throb page at www.artsconnectlex.org.